Heterodorks. 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 Hello, turfs and trannies. You are once again listening to the Heterodorks podcast. I am your co-host, Nina Paley. And I am your other co-host, Corinna Cohn. And Nina, the last episode, the one that we put out just recently, you said, hey, turfs and trannies and Zionists and anti-Zionists. Aren't we still considering our whole audience here? Uh, yeah, I also said Jews and Gentiles. So you, you yes, did, yeah. yes, turfs, trannies, Jews, Gentiles, Zionists, anti-Zionists, and even non-Zionists, or as I like to call them, non-Zionary, are mm-hmm. welcome to our all-inclusive podcast. I, I don't mean to correct you, but... As we established recently, you believe in establishing a second Jewish homeland. So do, please don't leave out the polyzionists. That's right. Well, I don't know. Is that really polyzionist? I, you know, I think you only need one. I just think it should be in Germany. Oh, you want to move it. Okay, I see. Well, yeah. why don't we discuss some of these ideas with today's guest, Jonathan Greenberg, Rabbi Jonathan Greenberg, who uh, we met earlier this year at the Quillette Social in Louisiana. And we got to know each other a little bit, and we've stayed in contact a bit on the Twitterverse, but we thought, let's bring him on and have uh, more conversation on this uh, interesting issue. Now, Jonathan, I'm going to introduce you in just a second, but I'm stepping in here as the producer. You have to stop playing with that bottle cap. Perfect. Jonathan, welcome to Heterodorks. Thanks. I, by the way, I think there already is a second Jewish homeland. It's just in Newark, isn't it? We, we thought maybe Florida. Oh, yeah. Boca. My, Miami. Good... Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the difference between a homeland. We were at, on our last episode trying to determine what a homeland is. Ah. What is a homeland? Maybe you could answer that. Well, I'm not sure what a homeland is generally, but uh, in, in the Jewish context, it's the place that gave rise to the Jewish people. So if you go back, you know, whatever, 4,000 years, you've got Abraham and uh, the establishment of Jews as an identifiable people, uh, complete with a book uh, that gave to humanity ethical monotheism. Hmm. Uh, so then the, the the place where that happened would be the Jewish homeland. I see. And, and then and then was for a couple thousand years until it wasn't, and uh, it was taken away from us by other people. And still, for the last two thousand years in Jewish liturgy, multiple times every day, an observant Jew will either refer to uh, or face or directly talk about returning to the land of Israel, God restoring us to the land of Israel. Every morning at morning services, every morning at morning services, we say a, a prayer at which we gather the four corners of our prayer shawl together and hold them in one hand and talk about God returning us to the land of Israel from the four corners of the earth. And we've done that for 2,000 years, since 700 years before Islam existed. And that is that intended literally? Okay. Well, it seems like there there is that place on earth that hasn't been flooded by rising oceans yet although that could happen that could that could create a complication it could be like uh trying to return to atlantis right that would be tough but in the case that we're dealing with in present day there seems to be some other people who are living in that area that don't necessarily have the same enthusiasm for a jewish homeland uh that's correct they don't 
Well, other, than, other than acknowledging that you're right, what do you want me to do with that? <laughs> well, nothing. I thought that this would be a good jumping off point to talk about a libertarian framework for solving the crisis of the Middle East. See, everybody has their own value that they place on, on sure. the property. So if we just get enough money together, we can buy out people who feel like they're entitled to those areas, and they can use that money to, to purchase a property anywhere else. The, the, the thing is, we just have to figure out a good market value for the land the Palestinians are on. Like, so Gaza's property value is probably quite low right now, though. There's probably some bargains there. I'm told they have lovely beaches. I've never seen them personally. Um, yeah. So the uh, it's interesting that you say that because the way that the early Zionists, starting after 1897, after the first Zionist Congress, the way that most of the land was uh, acquired in the first 25 years of the major push uh, of political Zionism to get Jews to settle there was that it, the land was purchased. That There was a, an apparatus set up after the first Zionist Congress in 1897 in Basel, Switzerland. Uh, there was an apparatus set up called the Jewish Agency, which still exists. And the idea there was for wealthy Jews around the world to help purchase land in the land of Israel from absentee effendi landlords in Syria and elsewhere, and to settle Jews on that purchased land. And that's, which is what they did. So the overwhelming majority of the land that made up the pre-state, what we'd call the Yishuv, mm -hmm. the, the, the pre-state places in, uh, in Israel where Jews lived, were purchased that way. So it's already been done, basically is what I'm saying. There's a, a saying in the Bible, Ein chadash tachat there's nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes. Yes, that's right. Can you define Zionist? What is a Zionist? Zionist is a person who believes that the Jews have a right to self-determination and self-protection in the ancient land of Israel. I like that. Nice and concise. Yeah. What's an anti-Zionist? Anti-Zionist is a person who doesn't believe that. Well, what's a, what's a um, so, non-Zionist then? Non-Zionist is a person who doesn't have an opinion on the matter, I guess. Mm. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so what's interesting is the starting in really the 1860s, you've got people writing on the necessity of the creation of a Jewish state. After 1882, you have the first kind of large wave of Jewish immigration to the land of Israel. 1897 is the first Zionist Congress, after which there's really a kind of a coordinated effort. And shortly thereafter, you start seeing writings from anti-Zionists, Jews, uh, who were arguing against the establishment of a political entity, a Jewish state. So this argument has already been had, and at least in the Jewish community, it was already argued out, uh, and the Zionists won. And so what's interesting to me is that anti-Zionists today, and Zionists too, think they're making new arguments. But we've already had this argument. Everybody wrote their ideas down. I don't see too much new. And if you take a few minutes in, well, it's more than a few minutes, if you take a couple semesters and read uh, early Zionist thought and early anti-Zionist thought, you'll see that these arguments have already been kind of hashed out. So, sure. um, it, yeah, so it's, uh, I, it, it's really just a, a function of making everybody take a couple of semesters worth of Zionist and anti-Zionist thought, and we should be fine. Right, right. But in the <laughs> meantime, we just want our listeners to know what we're talking about when we're talking sure. about Zionists, anti-Zionists, <laughs> and non-Zionists. Because I thought anti-Zionists were people who actively opposed a Jewish state in Israel. Yeah, look, I, I think, I th I'm sure there are, I'm sure there are people who, would call themselves anti-Zionists who don't do anything about it. And also, I, I mean, there are also people who I think would call themselves anti-Zionists under the umbrella of being opposed generally to ethno-nationalism. So, uh, you know, if you are a person who doesn't think that there should be 
either that nation states shouldn't exist if you're some kind of, I don't know, Rothbardian capitalist or some other kind of anarchist. If you're someone who believes that uh, ethno uh, ethno nation states that are you know assigned specifically for groups of people shouldn't exist, then you know the Jewish state is going to fall under that rubric. And so at least, and then you're being, I think, ideologically consistent. So were you always a Zionist? I'm from a Jewish home and my parents are Jewish. And um, I was raised, I think, nominally to the extent that we thought about it or spent much time thinking about it. I guess I was a Zionist. My brother um, moved to Israel pretty much when he was 18. He did his first year of college at Hebrew University in Jerusalem and never really came back. From the time he was 18, which would have made me 12, I was, you know, kind of generally aware of what was going on in Israel. And this would be mid 80s. I was kind of aware of what was going on in uh, Israel, that there was this place, Israel, and what the people were like. And I mean, to the extent that I gave it any thought at all early on, I guess you would call me a proto Zionist of sorts. And then once I grew up and learned about the place and and the people and I visited and saw what it was like. And of course, as I became more and more religiously observant, it it came to have a special place uh, in my life. And and so I I guess I became more of a, more of an aware and uh, intentional Zionist. Did you do the birthright thing? No, birthright, birthright didn't exist when I was a kid. It's uh, I think it's a, a, it's a 25 year old program. So I just missed the beginning of birthright or maybe it had just started when I was, um, uh, the summer I turned 18, I did a, a trip with the, the North American Federation of temple youth, which is the reform movements youth group. And, uh, I did a, I did a tour with them and it was a hiking tour. So we did, you know, some time in Jerusalem, some time in Tel Aviv, but for the most part we hiked, which was an amazing way to see the country. There's a lot of incredible places there. So, you know, water hikes down by Ein Gedi and hiking in the Golan and hiking in the, the Negev Desert. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an amazingly beautiful place. And uh, so that, that was my physical introduction. It was the first time I was ever there. Did you ever have doubts about supporting Israel? Did you ever no. hear stories that made you question your support? No, I heard lots of stories that either bothered me or upset me or that I wished were different or that I think are tragic, um, but nothing that ever made me reconsider my support for Israel. I, I generally am of the opinion that nation states are projects of human beings, uh, which means that they're all inherently flawed. Some are more flawed than others. Some systems are better than others. Some systems are worse. Uh, but I think uh, everybody makes mistakes. There's no such thing also as the virgin birth of a country. Countries are all born in blood and fire unless they're really lucky. Um, but for the most part, when you have to fight for the creation of your country, there's going to be a mess. Our, the Revolutionary War was not without its messes uh, in the, the United States. I, I don't know of a country that was. So, uh, no, I, I don't think anything ever made me question my support for Israel. Things made me question the people who were running the country at the time. But uh, no, not not for the existence of the state. I think that there are people, especially in the Jewish community, who are really uncomfortable with the idea of Jewish power, the the necessities that come along with governing authority are complicated, morally complicated, and that that moral complication is too much for some people, and they'd rather not have it and not have the security that comes along with it 
then have to contend with the, that moral complexity. I don't think that's a very reasonable position. Frankly, I think it's a little cowardly. But yeah, I, I understand it. And uh, especially the people who can be intellectually honest about that being the reason that they're uncomfortable, uh, I, I at least respect the position. So, Were you surprised on October 8th when there were demonstrations all over the world, including in multiple U.S. cities, that were ostensibly or nominally in support of Palestine, but seemed to also be in admiration of the acts that Hamas's uh, fighters uh, inflicted on the Israeli population. Were you, were you surprised that there was that outpouring of support? Nope. No, that doesn't surprise me. It didn't, it didn't surprise me. It, it's upsetting, but it's not surprising. I think if you know much about the people who uh, don't like Israel, mm-hmm. and you know much about Jewish history, it's hard to be surprised by things like that. Um, the there's a there's a portion of the uh, the the liturgy that we read on Passover at a Passover Seder is called the the Haggadah, um, and there's a portion of it that uh, says in every generation uh, they rise against us to destroy us, uh, and and that's really true. It's 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 very true in Jewish history, and, and uh, anybody who's a learned Jew knows it, that there are lots and lots of peoples who've arisen throughout history and have tried to destroy the Jews. And for some reason, we always, uh, we always manage to make an enemy out of somebody. And so, no, it doesn't surprise me that, uh, that those people were out in the streets. And it doesn't surprise me that they were, that there are people in the world who are shamelessly okay with the kind of stuff that we were here by October 8th, we were already hearing about some of the horrible things that had. we'd already seen some of the videos. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I, we knew, or the, the people who were out there knew or should have known what it was that was done. There hadn't been a bombing campaign that had started yet. Uh, so this was not in response to anything that Israel had done. This was in celebration of what Hamas did on the seventh. And uh, no, didn't surprise me at all. What do you think is, attracting a lot of so I, I have to imagine that a lot of the people who are coming out to participate in these demonstrations that even five weeks ago if you had asked them i bet most of them would not have had an opinion on the middle east but a, a lot of people are participating now they feel energized or passionate about this issue can you tell us what you think is going on with this population that's that's getting uh, pulled into it yeah, I, th- I mean, I think that, for, so first of all, for some of them, it's a box check on the on the far left, that if you want to be a member in good standing of progressive spaces, that you need to be um, re- reflexively anti-Israel. Uh, I think very few of them understand the nuances of what they're saying or supporting enough to understand that some of the language they're using is eliminationist. So I think that's a big part of it is just that it's a it's a box check. Then some of it is, you know, I would say borderline social contagion. It's, uh, you know, everybody's doing it. It looks like it's kind of fun. It's uh, my friends are all going out and doing it. Who doesn't want to be part of a, you know, something bigger than themselves? It's a, it's, this is a, a, a major problem that we've had on the American left for a long time. And we're seeing it increasingly on the American right, which is um, human beings need religion. And in the absence of established religion, they'll form their own religions. In this case, it's largely this is a, a movement of the left, um, and so this is, I would say, leftist religion. 
it's a problem in the American right too, I, in different ways. But so I don't, I don't mean to just criticize the left on this. But in this case, it's a, it's primarily a progressive religious movement, and and it's fun. It's a, you know who doesn't want to be part of a protest movement? And if you give, and my favorite is the the national walkout that they had. I, I guess it was yesterday or something. And you know what? You give a high school kid an option to walk out of class. Who's not going to take that? I certainly would have, and I probably. I probably wouldn't have cared what it was. I just would have had fun walking out. Um, so I think that's all the, all three of those things are, are at play. How did the left, the American left go from Zionists? It really seemed like Zionism was a lefty thing 30 years ago to anti-Zionists today. I think that there has always been, at least in the contemporary American left. So since the, maybe the cold war or, or since the sixties, um, there's been a segment of the American left that really uh, latches itself on to third world revolutionary movements. You know, the, the Palestinian national movement started off, uh, if you look at Yasser Arafat in the early 60s, as a left-wing liberationist movement. I mean, it was it, complete with left-wing economic policies and, and uh, uh, tendencies toward Marxism-Leninism and so it it attached itself, I would say, in the kind of the the American left. Now, the American left resisted the Palestinian national movement in a way that the European left never did because of the prominence of of Jews on the American left. So you had these old school liberal Democrats, people like I'm thinking like Nita Lowy from New York, members of Congress like you know, Bella Abzug and like these you know really well-known liberal American Jews who were extraordinarily pro-Israel, who uh, simply wouldn't tolerate that corner of the left having much power on the American left. I I think that's changed a lot, uh, especially in progressive spaces. I think that the Palestinian national movement has uh, seeped in to progressive spaces to the point where a lot of uh, American Jewish kids have been infected by it which is, I think, a shame. But uh, in some ways, I congratulate them on the, the success of their political operation. Uh, and w- I think we can learn a lot from that. Uh, the, the arguments that they use are fairly simple, and they rely a lot on falsehood uh, to the extent that they bother explaining things at all. And then the other thing that they rely on is emotionalism. There's a lot of emotionalism. So, for example, one of the reasons that you're seeing so much on Twitter about you know bombings and things like that is the the idea is you gin up people's emotion as much as possible because it's really the only the only argument that they have if if you actually spend time learning about the conflict it's a lot more complicated than you know this dead body or that dead body on either side so rather than introduce that moral complexity to anybody and have people struggle with it we just you know show them images that make people sad and then they they act out on their emotions i'm not sure i answered the question though do you think all Jews should be Zionists. I think all people should be Zionists. Okay. What do you think of Jews who aren't Zionists? You were Not talking about the young much. people. You said that they're infected. So I, I, I would say this. I, I think that um, it depends on how much you know. I assign a different level of uh, seriousness to people based on what they know. If you understand, so look, in the 1930s, it's perfectly reasonable for a Jew or anybody else to be an anti-Zionist. The state hadn't been created yet. If you thought that it was a bad idea, 
completely reasonable to me that you would be an anti-Zionist, even a vehement anti-Zionist. Today, 70 plus years after the state exists, when it's the largest Jewish community in the world, when it has revived the Hebrew language as a spoken language for the first time in 2000 years, when it is the center of Jewish academia, of, of Hebrew speaking, of Jewish religious academics, of Jewish religious life, of Jewish publishing, uh, when it's created this incredibly rich, uh, multi-ethnic culture, all centered around Judaism. I think it's disgraceful, frankly, to be anti-Zionist. And especially so when you realize that if you're anti-Zionist, meaning you don't want the state to exist anymore, then you need to paint a picture for me about what it means for the state to not exist anymore, because that has to come about somehow. And you must have an idea of how you'd like the state to no longer exist. The only ways that I can think of that happening are with lots and lots of dead Jews. If, so if you're advocating for the elimination of the state, you're going to need to tell me what happens to the people who live there. And there was a, a, a pretty well-publicized tweet that somebody put out very early on, on October 7th, uh, folks, I don't know what you expected, but this is what decolonization looks like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's what it looks like. And that's what Jews like me have been telling people for, I don't know, I've been doing this for 25 years. That's what it looks like. And that's what it would entail. And so if you're an anti-Zionist, and that's not your idea of decolonization in this case, I'd like to hear what your idea is. So well, again, well, I have I, this uh, libertarian uh, capitalist concept where Arabs can just raise a lot of money and buy Jews out from their <laughs> property and mm -hmm. see, then they can take all that money and, and move their homeland to Miami. Yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly an option. Well, I, think I, you, I think you would find there aren't a lot of takers, but uh... <laughs> my, my anti-Zionist friends seem to mm -hmm. have this idea that all Israel has to do is make a real democracy there. They just have to make a real democracy there and problem solved. There'll be no more killing. If, right. And I, I'm not think, quite sure what that looks like. I, I, <laughs> I, know. I, I think everybody, the, the first and most important lesson that I learned on this stuff is um, whatever idea you have to solve the problem, somebody already thought of it. It's probably already been tried. And maybe, and this is one of the things that really bothers me about people who look at this simplistically, maybe a little bit of humility uh, is, is called for um, in the face of one of the most intractable conflicts on earth today. And maybe just, you know, these are not, these are not stupid people. These are people who are actually, many of them very smart and very self-interested and have come up with different ideas for things before. There are movements uh, within especially within Israeli society, which I can speak more intelligently about, all kinds of different movements for all kinds of different solutions to the problem that uh, have been at various times, you know, ebbed and flowed in popularity. There's, there's a significant Israeli peace movement. Even today, there's a, a, a robust peace movement on the Israeli left uh, calling for de-escalation and ceasefire. And those people are very unpopular right now, but they're there and they're courageously saying what they think and God bless them. Cause it, it, this is another thing I think is I give Israelis a lot more leeway than I do American Jews to 
to pontificate on what Israel should do because they're the ones who are going to have to live with the ramifications of it. So if you're an Israeli and you think that just ending pulling out of the of the of Judea and Samaria, the what people call the West Bank, that that's what Israel should do tomorrow. Okay, look, I think that'd be suicide, but ultimately I'm not the one who's going to get killed for it. Uh, the people, Israelis who are advocating for it will. So if, if, you know, if you're the one that has to live with the ramifications of your politics, I think that's fair. Jewish Voice for Peace. What's your thought on Jewish uh, Voice for Peace and also, if not now? A, I think Jewish Voice for Peace is a, a pretty misnamed organization. I don't think there's much that's Jewish about them, and they certainly don't want peace. Uh, organizations like that typically don't want a peaceful solution. What they want to do is uh, they want Israel to lose. Uh, and they, uh, they again, it's, I think it's the same thing. If, the if not now, it's, it, I know more about if not now than I do about J Jewish Voice for Peace, JVP. I, I think they offer simplistic and homicidal solutions uh, to, the, to the problem. And I think they do it because they are ideologically fearful of moral complexity and they are children, especially the if not now people are, are angsty teenagers. They don't want they don't want a peaceful solution. They want Israel to lose. And that's either hostility to Western civilization or hostility to their own people. I, I the joke that I usually tell and I, I do kind of mean it as a joke, although only kind of. The joke that I, I tell is Listen, if you hate your parents, why don't you just say you hate your parents instead of like making it about destroying the Jewish state? Uh, so which is I think what I think a lot of this mo is motivated by people who, for one reason or another, are because of their parents or because of something that happened in the community or because, I don't know, they met a girl in college. I don't know. I, I think largely these are people who have personal issues with and they are overwhelmingly outnumbered in the Jewish community. So the other problem that I have is when you have Ayanna Presley or, or one of the members of the squad doing a, a press conference with representatives from those communities, you know, Jews demand a ceasefire, Jews demand this. That would be like me holding up Clarence Thomas as an example of what the black community wants. You mean lack of accountability, but lots of power? <laughs> uh, I, I mean uh, a, a set of opinions that does not oh, correspond oh. with the overwhelming majority of the community that he comes from. Uh, oh, by the way, free, I don't think not, not free vacation. I think everybody <laughs> wants free vacations. Though. I do want a free vacation. Yeah, uh, you don't have to be black to want a free. I vacation. actually, I'm kind of on a free vacation now. So, <laughs> yeah. well, see, there we go. There you go. Well, I think Jews are quite diverse. I actually, uh, I don't like it when any group claims to speak for Jews because Jews are very diverse. And I think Jews are much more diverse than most people think that they are. Yeah. My, um, one of my favorite, uh, tropes in this is that somebody will say, you, you know, you can't do that in my name, not in my name. Yes. Yeah, not in my uh, name, which is the name of another, for... it's the name of a movement, yeah. right? Yeah. It's so the, um, it, and it, I, I use it as kind of a joke now, I, I, the Jewish Voice for Peace people, believe me when I tell you, I am not trying to speak for them. Go to great lengths to make it clear that I don't speak for any of them and they don't speak for me. Uh, generally speaking, I think Jews are pretty capable of speaking for ourselves. Um, we, we build institutions and the institutions speak for the members of those institutions. Um, the, the leadership of the Jewish community, for example, you know, umbrella organizations like the, the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations, um, the leadership of our communal institutions, religious institutions, they're all empowered to speak for the people who are members of those institutions. 
then that's pretty much it. I don't know that the government of Israel has ever pretended that it speaks for for Jews internationally. Uh, th their job is to represent the people who live, work, pay taxes in Israel. Uh, I've never thought of the Israeli government as speaking for me. They said there's an old joke that uh, a guy is shipwrecked on a desert island. A Jewish guy is shipwrecked on a desert island, and when the navy comes to rescue him years later, they find that he's he's built two synagogues on this little desert island. And the captain says, sir, why did you build two synagogues? And he says, well, that's the one I go to, and that's the one I wouldn't be caught dead at. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I never thought that the government of Israel claimed to speak for Jews, but the Anti-Defamation League certainly has. To speak for all Jews? Yeah. The Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations is an, is an umbrella organization of the largest and most significant Jewish organizations in the American Jewish community. Uh, there are roles that are defined within the Conference of Presidents. The Conference of Presidents officially recognizes APAC, for example, as its lobbying arm. The Conference of Presidents recognizes the Anti-Defamation League as its watchdog on anti-Semitism. And so I think maybe you can reasonably say that they are the Jewish community's voice on it. I, I'm not a fan of the anti-defamation league. Um, although I think they've been good, uh, in this latest crisis, I'm generally not a fan of theirs over the last couple of decades, especially since Jonathan Greenblatt took over and I've been sharply critical of them. So they certainly, I would certainly say that they often don't speak at all for me. I guess the best thing that you can do in the Jewish community and probably in life is when somebody comes out with a good statement that you like, associate yourself with it. And when they come out with a statement that you don't like, disassociate yourself from it. I don't think that's particularly difficult. Yeah. Um, it's not, I but there's, there's all these people that like, even now there are, there are these Jews, maybe they're useful idiots. Maybe they're, <laughs> you know, have psychological problems, but there's all these Jews showing up, demanding a, a ceasefire, not a majority yeah. by a long shot, but a, you know, they're using their status as Jews to say, hey, not in our name. And there's all these people criticizing them, saying, oh, they're not real Jews. Those people aren't Jews. And no. uh, yeah, I, I said that, Nina. You said they're not real Jews? Well, I, I said that, that for a while, there's been a trend of the Tumblr kids that have decided to uh, start calling themselves Jewish without doing any conversion or attending any sort of synagogue or or anything like that but it's been trendy for some people to to put a star of david in their profile and, and start calling themselves jewish fake, fake so, jews but there's but there's actually legit jews like i you know yeah many yeah. of these people are actually legitimately jews and uh it it's ha happening on both sides where people who hate Jews, or let's say they hate Zionists, um, as far as they're concerned, as far as they're concerned, all Jews are Zionists, all Zionists are Jews. And then on the Jewish Zionist side, as far as they're concerned, all Jews are Zionists. And so when you have Jews that are anti-Zionists, it's like, wait, then they're not Jews. They, they cease to be Jews because they don't share your political position. Yeah. So um, the, I'll say two things about that phenomenon and it really bugs me um so first of all there are rules uh set down in jewish law about who's jewish 
and those people are Jewish, and I don't care what their political opinions are. It does actually, Jewish law doesn't say anything about being a Zionist or having this political opinion or that political opinion. Jewish law says you're born of a Jewish mother or you convert. And there are, there are rules about how conversion works. And so if you were born of a Jewish mother or you've gone through a, a formal conversion process that met those requirements, you are Jewish. And once you're Jewish, you can't not be Jewish. Uh, um, you can be what's called an apikoros in, in Jewish law, which is a, an apostate, um, but you mm -hmm. can't not be Jewish. So, I, but I uh, thought you could become Mormon, though. Uh, Mormons may convert you to Mormonism, but you're still, uh, halakhically, according to Jewish law, still Jewish. You need two um, passports to heaven. That's right. And who can, really, who can have enough passports to heaven? Yeah. Um, so the, so th that, that defines who's Jewish and I don't, I, I, I resist and I'm generally critical, especially on Twitter of people who say things like these people aren't real Jews. Well, I mean, the challenge to us, I think as Zionists, which is the overwhelming majority, I mean, it's 90 plus percent of the Jewish community, uh, the overwhelming majority of the Jewish community is Zionist to one degree or another. And the challenge to us is what do we do with these people given that they are of us? Um, and uh, and I'll, I'll say this. There's a, again, going back to the Passover, the Haggadah from the, from that we read during Passover, there are, there's a, a section of the, of the Haggadah that we read that talks about four sons. And one of the sons is the wicked son, the Rasha. Uh, and it says the, the, the wicked son going off a of memory, but it says the wicked son, what does he say? He says, what does all this mean to you? And he says, to you and not to us or to me. And so he reads himself out of, uh, out, outside, puts, places himself outside of the people. And to him, you say, it's because of what God did for me when we were in Egypt. For me, but not for him. Because if he had been there, he wouldn't have known redemption. That's almost a direct quote from the Haggadah. But... So we're, we're harsh with the wicked son, but he's still invited to the Seder because he's still one of us. And so I, I, I dislike this idea that because someone has political opinions that differ from the overwhelming majority of our people, even someone who weaponizes their Judaism against their own people, which a lot of these people do, uh, they're still of us. We still need to figure out what to do with them and, and how to keep them as part of our people, if we can. The second thing that I wanted to say, though, which is goes to that last point about what do we do with them? Uh, I always say, I, I actually tell my kids this, there, there were three kinds of Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto uh, when, when the, the people who lived in the ghetto resisted. There were three kinds of Jews. There were the Jews that hid, there were the Jews that fought, and there were the Jews that stood by Jurgen Stroop, the Nazi commander's car, and pointed out bunker locations on the map. The fourth kind, too, are the ones who reported to the Umschlagplatz, the train station, as they were ordered to do. But really, of those who stayed behind, there were those who hid, those who fought, and those who stood by the commander's car and pointed out bunker locations on the map. Who collaborated. Um, yes. In my house, at least, we teach being the second kind, the ones who fought. Um, uh, if you're not going to be that kind, then you should be the, the kind who hid. And we deal harshly with the kind who betray us, uh, which I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with. That doesn't make them not Jews. It just means we deal harshly with them. And I, I, have, I have the standard that I set, which I also call the Warsaw Ghetto Rule. The standard that I set, are, I have two rules. One, I ask myself two questions. The first is, would this person be fighting the Nazis with me? 
And two, would I trust them with my plans? So those are the two questions I always ask myself about any person who is, you know, opposed to me on an issue that I consider foundational to being Jewish. And I do consider Zionism to be foundational to Judaism. Would they be fighting alongside me? And would I trust them with my plans? So a guy like Jonathan Greenblatt from the ADL, who I generally don't agree with on things and, and don't very much like, to me, that's a no brainer. He would absolutely be fighting with me and I would totally trust him with my plans. Uh, a guy like Peter Beinart, um, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I might've trusted him with my plans, but I absolutely wouldn't today. So, uh, and those are, those are kind of the, those are kind of the things that I apply to each individual person, but that doesn't make them not Jewish. I'm sorry to ask who's Peter Beinart. Peter, Peter Beinart is, uh, um, he's a New York times columnist. He is, uh, I think he's an editor now at Jacobin. He's somewhere, uh, Jewish currents. I think, Mm -hmm. um, he was the editor of the new Republic. I think he's the youngest ever editor of the new Republic. So he's been around the, um, the literary world. Uh, for a long time. And he famously had a break with the American Jewish community over the issue of Israel. And then uh, just a year, maybe two years ago, he came out as uh, anti-Zionist or non-Zionist. I don't remember what he said, but uh, so he's had a, a conflicted relationship with uh, with Israel. He used to do, when I was working at APAC, he spoke at APAC events. So he was fiercely Zionist and in his 30s or 40s, he decided that he wasn't anymore. So um, he's so he's had a jury. So he's a, a a journalist, I guess, is how I would answer that question. What is someone like Corinna to do, watching these events unfold and the rise of anti-Semitism? Corinna's mother was not Jewish, but his father was. Mm-hmm. And as far as it's like, if somebody is out to harm Jews, I don't think they're going to care. Whether it was his mother or uh, his father. Yeah, no, it, it, it typically, uh, they typically, Jewish history suggests they don't care. So what are you to do? I, I think that, so I'd say the first thing to do is protect yourself. I've been uh, urging my Jewish friends to arm themselves for a long time, but especially in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and the, uh, it's, what's interesting is I hear anecdotally that there's been a significant rise in the number of American Jews who are applying for gun licenses and buying buying firearms. And I think that's long overdue. I'm glad that people are doing that. I say all the time on Twitter, buy guns, buy ammo, train, carry, do it now. So every, every, uh, the best thing that you can do is protect, is be able to protect yourself. I carry to synagogue. I've, I've been carrying to synagogue, uh, since after the Pittsburgh, the, the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh. I don't remember how many years ago that was. That's when I bought a handgun and I've been carrying to, to synagogue since then. There's a group of us that do at my synagogue. I would love to see Jews get a little bit more organized and harden Jewish institutions, uh, make them harder targets. There's a reason you don't see people messing with biker bars. It's because they know they'll get their ass beat and uh, nobody wants that. So you go off, generally speaking, they go after softer targets. I would like someone who walks into a synagogue to cause trouble to know that there's a good possibility they're not walking out. And uh, I, th- I think we are too easy to mess with and we, we don't take our own self-defense seriously. One of the, it's, which is so interesting to me because one of the things that American Jews a generation ago were so proud of about Israel was that Jews were finally taking self-defense yeah. seriously. And, but American Jews for some reason never 
learned that lesson. And uh, and quite the opposite, actually. American Jews are, you know, generally, g- generally, vehemently anti-gun. Uh, and uh, so I, I maybe we have finally learned the lesson that being able to defend ourselves is a good idea. Well, is do you consider Corinna a Jew, though? Not according to Jewish law. So, so. what should Corinna do? If other people Ooh. think Corinna is a Jew and want to want to kill him for that carry welcome, a gun <laughs> yes welcome welcome in my bunker welcome in my bunker anytime that's uh that, that i wouldn't presume to tell uh other people how they should respond i can make suggestions but look i i, I think that if corinna if you wanted to go through a, a conversion process and come to shoal i'd love to have you that's uh you can come with with me and my family anytime um but uh I, look I, I i think that if you think you're likely to be uh, identified by anti anti semites as a Jew, you owe it to yourself to protect yourself. A good way to protect yourself is by, you know, becoming a member of the community, whether you want to formalize that or not. Um, uh, I think, generally speaking, the Jewish community, especially in the more liberal branches, is pretty welcoming. Uh, so the, I, there's that way. Um, Listen, I also think that this is something that's true for our non-Jewish neighbors. If you don't like what you're seeing, and, and I've had these last couple of weeks, it's really been actually pretty lovely. I've had some non-Jewish friends that I haven't heard from in years who are reaching out to me asking if I'm okay. And, um, and I think that's, that's a wonderful thing for non-Jews to do is just check in because it it's been a rough few weeks. So that, that's nice. I, I have always said... So first of all, I'm a Jabotinsky. I, I, I'm a follower of a guy named Zev Jabotinsky, who was an early Zionist, died in, I think, the 1920s, never got to see the establishment of the state. He is the ideological forerunner of today's Likud movement. Um, but the Likud movement has kind of gone to places I'm not sure Jabotinsky would have liked at all. Um, Bibi Netanyahu's father, Ben Sion Netanyahu, was uh, an early acolyte of, uh, of Zev Jabotinsky. Uh, so, um, uh, all these, all these things are kind of interrelated, but I'm a Jabotinsky. I, Jabotinsky famously said, Jewish youth learn to shoot, uh, that we, it was, it was our obligation to defend ourselves. We needed to have the means and capability of defending ourselves. We had to learn and train to defend ourselves. And we had to stop going hat in hand to Kings and emperors and, uh, tyrants and, and, and begging for our protection. We needed to protect ourselves. Um, so, and I think that anybody, anybody who knows Jewish history knows that we've never really been able to rely on anybody long-term, but ourselves. Um, in America, I think we've found a small group of people with whom that's not true. Uh, I, I, I think largely when people, when push comes to shove and people have to choose their own safety, or the safety of a, of a friend, they're still going to choose their own safety. That's just human nature. But I do think that there are, I, I know that I have friends who are honorable non-Jews who would happily stand uh, on the battlements with me and, uh, and who I grew up in a, a place where uh, if I, if I was getting picked on for being Jewish, which happened to me when I was a kid, um, I have non-Jewish friends who would stand up for me. And I think that's still true. I think that there are people in our, we have neighbors and friends and who are non-Jewish. And if somebody wanted to get to me, they'd have to go through those people first. 
and the same thing is true on the other the other way around. I there I have friends who I love who if somebody wanted to get to them they'd have to go through me. Um, I think that's unique in Jewish history to the United States. I don't think that really exists elsewhere. Very limited numbers that existed even during the Holocaust. There were obviously there were people who hid Jews, but there were so few of them that uh, I mean they plant trees for them in a special place in Israel because there were so few of them they can do that. I think there are more of them here in the United States. And uh, so to our non-Jewish friends, just that that phone call or that text message of, of uh, just checking in allyship, it, it means a lot. I'd, I'd like to go back a little bit to Jonathan Greenblatt and ADL, if, if you don't mind. Um, the couple days after October 7th, I thought he was on fire because what ADL has been doing for the last couple of years is basically it's been a, a, a mouthpiece for gender ideology. Yes. Uh, un- unfortunately. And, and, I, and, I neo, and neo-racism. Shameful. And neo-racism. It, it's, and it's, it's a shame. My yeah. father was an ADL supporter uh, my, my entire life. I was a lot younger than him, but I, I remember every month that coming in and, and that was really important to him. I was like, okay, so I guess Jonathan Greenblatt's waking up like this left ideology really like he's getting slapped in the face. Now I looked a couple of days ago and now he's back to mm-hmm. back on track, I guess back to his old ways. And one thing that I thought was offensive to me is that he really wants to regulate the free expression. Um, the way that he says it is that we have to stop uh, instruments where people are are spewing hatred, mm. but what he's really asking for is more government control of mm. free expression, and th- to me that's that's antithetical to to my values, and it's I I can't say anything about whether it's antithetical to to Jewish values, but you probably could. From a a Jewish perspective, religiously. There's no such thing as free speech. That we are expected to police what we what we say individually, and, and our communities are expected to police um, what we say communally. And so, I, I I wouldn't say there's any the, the idea of free expression um, doesn't exist. I wouldn't say it exists as a religious concept. I, I will say argumentation hmm. um, is a major value in Judaism religiously. Always has been. Um, the Talmud famously codifies minority opinions you have in fact it's very difficult when you're reading talmud to de- to determine whose position the law goes with you've got two rabbis arguing with each other and you can't tell which one of them wins the argument according to jewish law that's why we have codices of law um so 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 documenting minority opinion and argument is a big part of judaism that's not the same thing. I, I, I'm not sure I would say that's the same thing as free expression. Certainly not as we understand it in contemporary American parlance. Hmm. But uh, to your to your so from a Jewish perspective, um, I I think that we have to be really careful using the levers of government power to shut down speech and protest. Um, I I do think so. I, I don't know if you saw this video yesterday. Um, uh, there were some Jewish students at Cooper Union in Manhattan mm-hmm. uh, yeah. who were had to be barricaded in the library and were offered the opportunity in New York City in 2023. They were offered the opportunity 
to hide in the attic from the mob that was outside the library doors banging on the doors. Uh, I think that's a step beyond free expression. That's, uh, you know, violent intimidation. And uh, I think that's where where, when you start seeing stuff like that, I think that's beyond free speech. Um, I also think that a culture of free speech and a culture of uh, making people to feel ashamed for the shitty, terrible things that they think or say, that's, that's not the same thing. So, for example, if you are a person who's walking around New York or any other major city and tearing down missing persons posters of Israeli five-month-olds, there's something deeply screwed up with you, and I don't think, and I don't think that's a problem for me to say. Um, if that's your, and also if your idea of speech is destroying my speech, which is you know putting up that missing person poster, I'm not sure that's free speech. Uh, free speech would be you putting up your own damn poster, uh, and not over mine. So the I'm generally of the opinion that more speech is good. Um, I think if you're intimidating people from speaking uh, or from being outside of the library at Cooper Union, then that's not free speech. What, what I, would I also, you say about the the students that were projecting um, some of the uh, propaganda phrases onto the the side of the uh, George Washington um, yeah, so, library? Yeah, um, so I I think that the police stopped them. Uh, you yeah. know, the university has every right to say what gets shown on the side of its building. It looks, you know, when you shine something like that on a university building, it looks as if it's approved by the university. Was this um, the glory so, to our martyrs? Glory to the martyrs. Yes. And there was yeah. some, some other stuff. The, um, I, I think that, uh, so the university had every right to stop them from doing that. The university has every right to punish them if that's what the university sees fit to do. I don't think I would prosecute anybody for that, but the, I don't think you need to use government power, but the university has every right to police what goes up on the side of its buildings. I also think, by the way, that the the move by some uh, business people and law firms to um, sever relationships with students who say terrible things, I don't have any problem with that. Those are private industries who, look, if you don't want to have somebody working for you that is okay with baby beheading, then I think that's pretty reasonable. I, I wouldn't want to work in a cubicle next to somebody who thinks it's okay to behead Jewish babies. Uh, so, uh, or who is a uh, Hamas supporter, thinks it's okay to rape women until their pelvises are broken or kidnap children and their moms. Uh, you know, and there's a, I, I just saw this morning that there's, a, there's an account that I follow on Twitter that's been sending out pictures of, uh, of some of the kidnapped Israeli kids. And, um, and this one really hit me, this uh, beautiful little girl. Um, she's five years old, entering her 20th day uh, in captivity in Gaza without either of her parents. Her parents are dead. And uh, you know, she's among these strange, terrifying men and God only knows what conditions in, in a dark hole somewhere. And I mean, it's inhuman to treat children like that. And uh, so you know, if somebody is celebrating that, then I don't think I want them working in the next cubicle. I wouldn't want the government to tell companies that they can't. I mean, I don't want to make that a law. But if uh, if the company that I worked for said, you know, we were going to hire this person and now we're not going to because they said all these terrible things, I'm fine with that. And by the way, I will say, if you're in a position uh, of providing uh, trusted care to someone, if you're going to be a doctor, for example, 
um, there was a doctor several years ago working at the Cleveland Clinic who uh, said on Twitter that she was going to give the wrong meds to Jewish patients. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure that person should have a medical license. Um, that's not, it's not funny. So it's not something you should be joking about. And if you're serious, obviously you shouldn't be a doctor. So I think, I think we can ask people even in the age of social media to be responsible. I don't think I've ever tweeted anything that I can't stand behind. And if I, if I tweet something out out of anger, I would delete it, screenshot it, say I deleted it and why, but I'm also not asking to be anybody's doctor. So yeah. Uh, I'm going to ask something now that's, that's, not not fair to people who are not present because they're not going to be here to defend themselves. But I want to tell you about a phenomenon I've I've experienced over the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. So when this all hit, uh, and I've said this a few times, I don't think Israel has completely clean hands or or even clean hands. Uh, there's been a number of things that the IDF has done and that the government has supported mm-hmm. that I I think is bad, right? And it pales into comparison to what Hamas did on October 7th in terms of its inhumanity and and brutality. And I've expressed a number of times, like, I want to understand good arguments why people would be pro-Palestinian in this particular instance, given given everything, given given Hamas particularly, given the support, who's supporting uh, Hamas. Like, why, why do we want to be pro-Palestinian? And apart from a few people who I really appreciate engaging with me with, with what I would say is, is genuinely good uh, intent, I have had so many people who've been my followers on Twitter mm-hmm. send me propaganda, send me uh, stuff that it, it has just been debunked and uh, write like, sort of uh, sarcastic things to me uh, that that sort of look like uh, good faith, but aren't. And when I go and look at their likes or when I look at their, their timelines or their retweets, it's, it's just like the, what I saw today is, um, oh, I used to think, how could anybody uh, hate Jews? But then I realized that the Jews I liked are, are anti-Zionists. I'm like, oh, that's... Why Why do you think that you can support that view and then try to persuade me to be pro-Palestinian? So I'm, I just want to get your reaction to it because the, these people aren't here to defend themselves. But I wanted to share that with you and get your reaction to it. Not sure, what am I reacting to? I'm not sure what the question was. Well, I would say of the people who've engaged me, and again, this is availability bias but the people who've engaged me with us on the issue the majority the clear majority just aren't doing so in good faith they're not using credible sources they're com- they're very commonly using propaganda they're using uh thought terminating cliches yeah. uh it's it's a uh genocide it's an yeah. outdoor pr- prison it's the world's largest pr- yeah. uh it that like any questions about like what's Egypt's role in this or, well, yeah. we, we can't even think about Egypt. Uh, that's not fair to ask that. Like it's, it's un- almost uniformly. And, and again, I really appreciate the people who've, who've not done that, that where we've talked about this, but uh, the, the vast majority are like, yeah, that. I'm not, it's frustrating. I'm, yeah. So, well, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's, it's frustrating to be on 
my side of this because it's there's an advanced argument that's required to be pro-Israel. Um, and uh, the other side, in my experience, uh, really is unconstrained by anything that's true. Um, and what I find, so first of all, by the way, there are plenty of people who are Zionists who are pro-Israel, who don't know much or anything about the conflict, who say stupid things, who say racist things, who should mm. shut the fuck up. And so the, can I say that on the podcast? I can say that, right? Okay. So they should yeah. shut the fuck up and the, uh, they're not helping. Um, that said, institutionally, the other side has th these foundational problems with telling the truth. And I find that the best way to argue, I'll give you a great example that just from some, some idiot on Twitter responded to one of my tweets with a meme of David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, and some quote that I had never heard that he said. And on, I, and on Googling the quote, it turns out it's from a book by a third party who says Ben-Gurion said it to him. So Ben-Gurion never was recorded saying it, never wrote it down. And so, you know, that is it a lie? I don't know. I wasn't there to hear it, but the it, it's that kind of. And by the way, this person then cited a book by a historian named Benny Morris, who's a, a deeply troubled Jewish anti-Zionist, and not someone who a serious historian would take seriously. But this person doesn't have any idea who they're citing. They found something on the internet that they liked. And they're using it, right? That's uh -huh. the people that you're referring to have heard that Israel is violating international law. Well, ask them what international law that Israel is violating. Tell me what the laws of war. Where do I go to find the laws of war on uh, who is a, a protected person? Where is that located in, interna in international law? Where is the doctrine of proportionality located in international law? Where do I find that bit of law for myself, just to look at for myself. You know, you're telling me that it's against international law. Where do I look for myself? They will almost never know, have any idea. And um, that's because they heard that what Israel's doing violates international law, and they're parroting it. They've decided without having any real uh, understanding of the conflict, who's at fault. And that fault generally comes from who is stronger, and on the left, who is considered whiter. And that's a that's also that's a big problem in the progressive uh, in the progressive movement is that Israel is viewed as a white colonial oppressor. Um, never mind that over half of the Israeli population is not white and not European. That doesn't matter. They don't even know usually that that there are non-white Israelis, um, and they project you know American race fetishism onto the uh, to the conflict in a way that is completely ridiculous. Uh, but generally speaking, these are people who don't know anything about the conflict and haven't bothered. They've they've come to a very strong opinion without actually knowing anything. I find that those people are the worst to argue with because I'm actually an expert on the situation and I have nothing to tell them that they'll be at all interested in. Everything I have to say is lies and haspara is propaganda and uh, that that. Any fact that I can throw out at them, no matter how well documented, won't be good enough for them. Uh, they are very Trumpy that way, actually. I have the same experience dealing with Trump supporters. 
So um, it's uh, it's very frustrating. It's a fact of life in this conflict. By the way, the fact that people have strong opinions about this conflict absolutely should blow you away. Mati Friedman, who's a, a an Israeli American writer, did a, a piece uh, several years ago now in Tablet Magazine about the way that the Associated Press reports the, the press generally, but he had worked in the in the Associated Press office. The way they report on the, this conflict in particular, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but what he said was there are dozens of Associated Press reporters in the office in Israel. There At the time, there were a handful of reporters, three, four reporters, in the Beijing office of the Associated Press. The fact that they were reporting that much, putting that many resources into what is a very small conflict with a very small body count compared to other conflicts in the world, and putting that little energy into China, uh, you know, not at the time the world's, the world's second largest economy, you know, second largest rising power economically and militarily, that it tells you everything that you need to know. Why are they paying so much attention to this relatively small regional conflict? Why is there so much interest? Why are our, our friends on the progressive left out protesting today? But a few years ago, when Bashar al-Assad, the dictator in Syria, was gassing whole gassing with sarin gas, whole Palestinian villages in Syria. Nobody gave a shit. Why? When Israel bulldozes a Palestinian home, there are protests all over the world. Egypt, several years ago, went into the their side of the Gaza border and bulldozed everything within a mile back from the border. If you go stand on the Gaza on the on the on the wall in Gaza, which I've done. And you look, there is a there is a vacant area from the Egypt border for a mile in, and Egypt went in and bulldozed everything. They displaced seventy thousand Palestinians because they wanted to create a, a security barrier. Nobody ever heard about it, and the reason nobody ever heard about it is because when it's somebody else beating up on Palestinians, nobody gives a shit because nobody actually cares about the Palestinians here. None of them. All these people who are crying crocodile tears over the Palestinians don't give a shit about the Palestinians. They care about who's beating them up. And if it's Jews, it's a problem. And if it's non-Jews, who cares? So they don't really care about the Palestinians. Even, by the way, a lot of Palestinians, Palestinian academics, Palestinian journalists, Palestinian activists, they don't care about their own people either. Uh, because they also don't, when Assad is gassing villages in Syria, they don't care either. Uh, it's only when Israel does something. And that's because, uh, to get off on another topic. I, I don't know if you stop me if you don't want me to go here, but yeah, yeah. To, uh, this is a big part of the problem that the Palestinian national movement has always had. The Palestinian national movement's primary objective is not the establishment of a Palestinian state. They could have had that several times. They don't want a Palestinian state because a Palestinian state comes with responsibilities, and responsibilities are boring. What they want is to destroy Israel, almost, almost all of them. They see that, Israel. That is more exciting, right? They see Israel as an illegitimate presence in the Middle East, uh, as a, a usurper of Arab lands. Uh, that's how Israel's viewed throughout the Middle East, actually. And their primary objective: Would they like to have a country to be self-governing? I, I don't know. Probably. Their experience with self-government hasn't been very good. The Palestinian Authority is not something you want to live under, um, but. Setting up a, you know, these are not Jeffersonian Democrats, right? These are not people who are trying desperately to breathe free. 
these are people who are trying to destroy Israel. And that's the primary objective. And, and all of the evidence points to that. And frankly, all the publicly available polling points to that. Um, so I, I think that's uh, – and in the West, among Western progressives, um, dealing a blow to Western civilization, which of course is evil and racist and colonialist, uh, that's mm-hmm. what's most important. So when Assad, who's not Western and not a colonialist and not white, when he kills people who are Palestinian, nobody cares. But let the Jews do it and it's a problem. Jonathan – how does it end? How does the killing end? I mean, if I knew that, I like, I think somebody would have elected me to something by now. The, um, I mean, I, I don't. It, it ends in all like. I mean, the, the best way for it to end would be for Palestinian civil society to decide that they've had enough of living like this, uh, and to raise up leaders who are willing to negotiate and come to an agreement. Uh, and then those leaders have to be prepared to police their own side of the agreement. Um, you know, the Oslo Accords effectively ended when Arafat no longer was interested in policing his own people. And I, I lived in Jerusalem in 2001, 2002 during the second intifada. Um, I was, I heard 17 suicide bombs. I was close enough to feel two of them and it was every day. Um, and uh, that terror war where you're blowing coffee shops uh, that was their answer, that, that was their decision that they didn't want a solution to the problem that involved negotiation and compromise. A big part of the cultural problem in the Palestinian world is that their leaders have never prepared them for the kind of compromise that will be necessary uh, if there's going to be a peaceful solution to this. So the Netanyahu government has been focused on managing the crisis. Uh, and you saw how well that worked on October 7th. That was, uh, it was, that strategy was uh, revealed as a catastrophe. Um, so the, the peace process, the two-state solution peace process failed. Managing the crisis has now failed. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know how it ends. I'm not sure that it ends in the way that we're used to wars ending. Uh, you know, Americans are used to, you know, signing a, a piece of paper on a battleship somewhere and, and then the, the war is over and we can celebrate in Times Square. And, um, you know, Vietnam didn't end that way. Korea never ended. Afghanistan obviously ended very – it's a, the, the old way of wars ending, I'm not sure, is operative anymore for Western countries, especially when non-Western countries are the adversary. Um we are all, and that's the other thing is the, the laws of war were written when you had one or more Westphalian states fighting one or more Westphalian states. Uh, and they're written uh, for those conditions. Those haven't been the conditions in war uh, 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, and, and the enemies of Western civilization have figured out what our rules are, have figured out how we have constrained ourselves in war, and they use it against us. Uh, they use it against us uh, for propaganda purposes, and they use it against us for military purposes. Hamas and Israel are, are an example of this. And Israel is a small country without a lot of friends. The U.S. can bomb the shit out of whoever we want to, and nobody's going to do anything because we're the lone superpower, and we have a vote on the Security Council, so nobody's ever going to condemn us. 
and we aren't signatories of the Rome Statute, so nobody's gonna and nobody's gonna drag our generals in front of the uh, International Criminal Court. Uh, Israel is a smaller country, uh, and if the world decided they wanted to gang up on Israel and drag its leaders before the International Criminal Court, they could do that. Uh, the U.S. would stand in the way today, but 15, 20 years from now, will the U.S. stand in the way of that? I don't know. It would be colossally unfair, but that <laughs> since when has that stopped the world? So the I, look, I how does it end? I I I don't know, and I don't know if it does in our lifetimes. Uh, Palestinian culture would really have to change in order for it to end, and I'll 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 end this answer with this: culture matters greatly here, and Israeli culture is starting to show, or was before this, maybe things change. There will be, by the way, a huge cultural change in Israel following this. I'm just not sure what it'll look like. But as of October 6th, Israeli culture was starting to show cracks that I was really uncomfortable with. You were starting to see um, a lot more overt, uh, violent talk and action uh, by Israelis, especially on the right, about Palestinians, about Arabs. Um, it took a long time for Israeli culture to start to allow that. There was always some of that. There are, all, there are assholes in every culture. Um, there was always some of it, but it was limited, and it was it was overwhelmingly condemned when it happened. When Baruch Goldstein went into the um, uh, the the cave of the patriarchs in Hebron, trying to say everything in English, and I can't remember what all the words are. Um, uh, in Hebron is the Hebrew word in Arata Machpelah, the cave of Machpelah, which is where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were buried. When he went in there with a gun and massacred a bunch of Muslims who were, were worshiping, um, there were some assholes who thought that was great. But overwhelmingly, it was shameful and condemned. Israelis were horrified, including right-wing religious leaders were horrified by it. It's the, that was the culture in Israel. I've seen some trends it's still light, but I've seen some trends in, in the direction toward less toleration that I'm not super comfortable with. But I also think that under the circumstances, the drip, drip, drip over decades is going to move a culture in ways that we may not like. Compare that, though, to the culture on the other side. You've probably heard the audio by now of the one of the terrorists calling his parents. Did you hear the, the IDF released this, this audio? Celebrating to his, letting his, proudly telling his parents, who are proud of him, that he personally murdered 10 Jews. He doesn't say Israelis, 10 Jews, and he's calling from one of the dead Jew woman's cell phones. And his father is proud of him, and his mother is so, so proud of him, and that's fucked up. And that's culture, and that's what you have to change. I would love to see Palestinian leadership rise up and say, this has to change. We can't live like this. We can't have what we want this way. There's a better life available um, for everybody if that culture can change. Uh, I think that if you look after the second intifada, uh, the, the terror war I was telling you about 20 years ago, the Israeli public realized there was no peace to be had with these people, the Palestinian leadership, Hamas, there's no peace to be had. And they're the ones with the guns. So the, uh, that's when this kind of managing the, the, the conflict came about. 
you have to make these that's the other thing culturally you have to make the israeli public believe that a peace deal is worth the paper it's signed on the you know these this is a free people who are able to read things on their own and make their own decisions and argue about things and you have to find a way to make them believe that a peace deal would mean peace israel gave up concrete things in the oslo process they gave they pulled their armies back they gave weapons to the palestinian authority they gave money to the palestinian authority all of that ended up being used against them in the second intifada and so israelis were old enough to remember that which is everybody over 30 you know those people are not going to be easy to convince to take a chance like that again because they remember what happened the last time and that's and by the way that's not to say that there isn't psychological trauma on the palestinian side obviously there is uh but their culture the cultural reaction to being treated the way the Palestinians have been treated, whatever reasons I might think are valid or not for the treatment, the the cultural response to being treated that way is still pretty messed up. Jews have been pretty badly treated in our history. I don't remember any of us cutting a baby out of a pregnant woman, cutting its head off in front of her and then cutting her head off. And by the way, live streaming it to the world. I don't remember any of us doing that. I don't remember of us lighting, remember us lighting families on fire. But we didn't. I we didn't say, have the technology to document it until very right, recently. I, right, that's true. I, I also don't know that we ever had the power to do that. I will say there. There's an example that I, I was thinking of um, uh, earlier yeah. today. A few years ago, there was a Palestinian family who some Jewish terrorists snuck into their village, lit this family's house on fire. Uh, and the little boy burned to death. During their trial, the, the men who did the men, which I use lightly, uh, who did that, taunting the family, uh, just horrifying, embarrassing garbage from garbage people who happened to be in my tribe to my embarrassment. Again, wall-to-wall horror inside of Israel. There's no celebrating. There's no, you know, calling mom and dad about how proud you are wall-to-wall condemnation and horror so to the extent that those examples exist they exist as deep scars on the israeli psyche self-inflicted i i do think there's a big cultural difference and uh which is why i i'm very comfortable on the side that i'm on jonathan i i appreciate that you are able to spend your time with us here i, I know you're at a conference and and you've got some stuff going on today what can our listeners do? Like, what resources would you recommend to for people to to try to have good education about sure. what's happening here, about Jews generally, about this conflict? Like, where would you point people? So, um, I'm a big reader. I'm a big believer in uh, in um, going to source material, uh, written source material. I think that there are a number of books that that are pretty good histories. Uh, of Israel, of the conflict. Um, but I start with philosophy. And if, if someone's interested in why there needed to be, or why it was believed by Jews at one point in history that there needed to be a Jewish state, I think the best thing to do is uh, uh, go on Amazon or whatever bookstore is your choice and find Arthur Hertzberg's The Zionist Idea which includes uh, writings from anti-Zionists. Um, and it's going to start you in 1868, maybe, around then. 
uh, and walk you all the way through to the, toward the establishment of the state. There's a follow-up volume um, by, I think, Gil Troy uh, compiled it that starts in the same place but goes through into the 90s. Um, so even after the establishment of the state, the continuing development and evolution of Zionist thought. I think philosophically, uh, that's the place to start. And the, the reason I think that is the history, it matters, right? But the philosophy tells you why. So you can find out the what later. But I really think the why is what matters. Why did, why did the Jewish people, why this homeland? Why there? Why at all? Uh, and, and why is it not, I, I think all of that stuff answers why it's not appropriate to call it a colonial project. It's not a colonial project. It's a coming home. Um, and, uh, it's, it's complicated, but it's, I think it's inappropriate to call it a colonial project. But so I would read, I, and I would say Arthur Hertzberg's designist idea is a great place to start. I find it fascinating. I'm not sure somebody who's new at it would, but I think that's a I think that's a great place to start. And then if you're looking for a, a fairly simple readable history, I would say Howard Sacker's history of S A C H A R, Howard Sacker's history of Israel from the rise of Zionism to our time. It's been through several editions, so you want to get whatever the latest edition is. All right. Well, gosh, thank you very much. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks David. for having me, Jonathan David Greenberg. My brother's middle name is David. <laughs> Jonathan and David are best friends in the Bible. Oh, that's that's why. Okay, and uh, maybe and- that's why. And and thank you, Aaron it's, it's Cohen. Subconscious. Thank you, Aaron Cohen, for co-hosting this podcast. My name is Beverly Saint Marie, <laughs> and I'm going to call you that from now on, Nina. I'm sorry, Beverly. Beverly, yes. Thank you. No, for... I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I'm not going to dead name you and call you Nina. <laughs> thank you for listening yeah. turf trannies zionists anti-zionists non-zionists jews gentiles and and, and poly-zionists. poly-zionists and everyone else next year in jerusalem bye bye, bye. hey everybody thank you for listening to heterodorks by visiting our page at anchor.fm slash heterodorks or by supporting Nina Paley at patreon.com slash Nina Paley. You can also support us by writing a review on your favorite podcast site, such as Apple Podcasts. Thank you.